Well, let me say good morning. We will be there in Genesis 3 if you have a copy of God's Word and want to turn there. Um, it is a joy to be here uh, with you guys. I want to bring greetings from uh, the churches that make up the Pillar Network um, and then also from my home church, Open Door, as Pastor Brian uh, alluded to. I'm actually from the Dallas area, so I grew up here in Dallas. I uh, was born in Baylor Hospital in downtown Dallas, so it's good to be back in town. I'm one of four sons, uh, and so all four of us, we oftentimes, even in our middle age, are called the Aiken Boys uh, because our dad's a pastor, and we're all now in ministry. And so all five Aiken men are preaching here in Dallas today. And then we came in also to go to the Cowboy game tonight. We're big Cowboy fans. So it's a joy to be able to, to be here, also to preach alongside my brothers in a city that we love, a city that we grew up in. Uh, and so it's always good to sort of return home, even though I've been gone from here now almost 30 years. And so it's a joy to be back and to be able to open the word with you guys. Been thankful to get to know Pastor Brian a little bit uh, and to form a friendship and just thankful for the partnership we have in the gospel. Also just thankful to open the Word with God's people. It's a joy to preach the Word uh, and to continue this series you guys are looking at uh, on the Apostles' Creed as we consider the line uh, that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And so if we've sort of been around the Christian thing for a while, that probably is even a commonplace thing that we might say, but I want us to think through that. And I think it's an appropriate thing for us to think through as we uh, kind of enter into the Christmas season as uh, I guess most of us are entering into the Christmas season. Some of us never leave it, but it's a good thing to uh, enter into that. Indeed, uh, we are talking about a season where we think about the fact that he has come into the world to bring salvation, to bring salvation, which means or sort of necessitated him coming into the world to deal with sin. That means he's come into the world to deal with our own personal sin. Uh, he's come into the world to deal with sin done against us. You might say he's come into the world to, to bring forgiveness for us, and he's also provided a way for there to be forgiveness from us to people who might have sinned against us, as well as to just deal with the consequences of sin that are felt by the entire world, not just by us personally. This fact that sin has come into the world, and indeed it has marred all of creation. So this morning, as we think about that line for the forgiveness of sin, I, I want to look at the first sin. I want to look at kind of the outset of human sin that has plunged the world, the whole world, into what we call the fall. It's brought on the world what we call a curse, a curse we all feel. Some of us, uh, the more and more and the older and older we get, some of us feel that curse all the more. But we're also going to look at, as we think about the concept of sin, we're also going to look at the grace of God. The fact that our living God has, has gloriously and mercifully and graciously dealt with sin and and what that then means for who we are and what, what it means for our future. You know, humanity asks some big questions. Most people, whether they would really say this out loud, but they, they, humanity asks big questions, and those questions, uh, whether they know it or not, actually revolve around sin. We, we ask questions like, why are we here? What is my purpose? But those questions then always lead us to ask things like, well, then why are things not right around me? Why are things not right within me? We feel this sense of brokenness, and that always leads us to then contemplating questions like, well, what can make this right? And even in our brokenness, where are we actually headed? 
So we ask questions like that, and those big questions either revolve around sin or they are marred because of sin, and yet this is why we love the Bible. This is why we say the Bible is sufficient for our needs because the Bible graciously and gloriously provides for us an answer to those questions. And we're going to begin to look at those as we look at Genesis chapter 3, a, a chapter that really sets the stage for the rest of the Bible, but in, in many ways sets the stage for the rest of human history. And it begins to answer some of those big questions, the questions of how and, and, you know, why are we here and the purpose. And even as we think about the concept of sin, they answer the questions of the how and why of sin. But even better than that, as I hope to show very clearly, it begins to give us a glimpse of the gospel. That good news story that God in his utter grace does not leave us in our sin, does not leave us in our rebellion, but he has come to to rescue us, to redeem us, indeed this morning to forgive us in the person and the work of his son. And you might say it like this, this is the greatest story ever told because it is a true story. And this morning we'll think about the story, a story that revolves around what I'm calling three trees and three gardens. Now, for the context of where we're at in Genesis 3, I'm going to read a couple of surrounding verses. I'll actually start in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. I'm going to read a few verses there, and then I'm going to flip over to John chapter 19, I'll read a few verses there, and then I'm going to pray again and ask for God's help. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, and the prophet Moses writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then look down at verse uh, 30 real quick. 31 says this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was morning, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God restored all his work that he had done in creation. And then verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east there he put a man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was, tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you have a chance, turn over to John chapter 19. I'll read a few verses there that fit with the context this morning of where we're headed. John chapter 19, we'll start in verse 41, and our brother John writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they had not understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept as she stood to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. This is amazing. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Father, as we turn our attention now to the book, I do ask that you would have mercy upon me, a sinner. Father, would you help me to preach with confidence in your word for the good of the saints here at the Fields Church. Father, now what we know not, would you please teach us? Father, what we have not, would you please give us? And then, Father, what we are not, would you please make us? Father, now would you sanctify us in the truth? Father, we know your word is truth. Be with us now, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. I don't mean to brag, but when I was 13 years old, I made the uh, Little League All-Star Baseball team in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and we won the regional tournament, so we got to go to the state tournament in Cherryville, North Carolina to play uh, for the state tournament where we would end up getting eliminated in a baseball game 28-3. to I told, you, I told you I was not trying to brag. Now, on that team, there was a guy who, who, for some reason, I just did not get along with. His name was Robbie. And it wasn't because we played the same position or anything like that, but for some reason, we just did not get along. And on the way back from Cherryville, North Carolina, to Wake Forest, on the team van, I, I have no idea what, I still can't remember what really sparked what happened. Uh, and I was a, you know... I was a great kid. I was a good kid. So I probably didn't do anything to deserve this. But on the ride back, uh, Robbie turns around on the van and he spits on me. Now, even when I say that now, something like, you know, almost 25 years later, more than that later, I still get angry about that. Like my, my blood pressure still picks up even just thinking about that because spitting on somebody is such a sign of disrespect, especially if you think that that person is a punk to begin with. You know, we all have stories like that in our lives where somebody has done something where they've, they've wronged us, where they've maybe sinned against us, and we're kind of left wondering, what will we do? How will we respond to, the, respond to this wrong? We see dilemmas like this in great movies as well, like, like The Count of Monte Cristo. I even hear there's, there's a book with that name. 
movies are just so much better. But there you have this main character who is significantly wrong, sinned against. We see this in the Bible as well. We see this in places like where the innocent Jesus is being arrested and his friend Peter, in order to respond to that wrong, will pick up a sword hoping to do something about it. And as I said at the beginning, some of life's biggest questions either arise because of sin or they are marred because of sin. Sin done to us, sin done by us, and because of the, uh, the effects of sin that are just on the world itself. I mean, in a very real way, it, it, because we live in a fallen world, because we live in a cursed world, how we relate to sin affects every single second of every single day of our entire lives. And yet, as we celebrate this morning, God has made provision to deal with sin, and that begins with him dealing with sin and then offering forgiveness to sinners, this act of God, not counting our trespasses, not counting our sins against us with all that that entails. And so my main idea, the the main thing I want to think about this morning is I want us to see that forgiveness of sins revolves around three trees and three gardens. This, This gospel story that God has given to his people Indeed, it is a true story of the whole world. It, it will answer life's biggest questions because it talks about why we are here. It talks about what went wrong. It talks about this wonderful provision of what God has done to fix what has gone wrong, which then, it mean, which then means it also answers lesser questions like, what do I do when Robbie spits on me? What do I do when my, my spouse irritates me or my boss ticks me off? What do I do when somebody really sins against me? This gospel story makes sense of everything. Now, here's the context. I've read it, but in a very real sense, where we're at this morning, the context, you can't go further back then because it's creation itself. The triune God of the universe has created us in his image as the, as the crowning work of creation. In this, we are not like the animals who have been created according to their kind. No, instead, we are created after his kind, after his likeness. Thus he says of us, the crowning work of his creation, we read it, he says of us, it is very good. Now as we enter the holiday season, when most of us begin to take on a little extra holiday weight, just remember, you have been created very good. And after humanity was created, the work of creation itself is done, it's finished. There's no more refrain after the sixth day of morning and evening. And this is who we are, right? We are humanity, the apple of God's eye, created to be in relational harmony with him as his, his representatives, his vice regents on earth, who we saw in the text have ruling dominion over the rest of creation. And that means speaking to purpose. We, humanity, there initially Adam and Eve, are to bring glory to God by being fruitful and multiplying. They're to fill the whole earth with worshipers who bear his image, who bear his likeness. That sounds an awful lot to me like the Great Commission. Our responsibility is to fill the earth with people who are worshipers of the true God. And our parents are put into a paradise. They're put into Eden in order to commune with God, to to worship him, to obey him, and then to carry out these purposes. And that brings us to our text this morning. It brings us to the first tree and the first garden, where we see a garden and a tree of life that lead to death. Here's what Moses writes, verse 1. He says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the first thing that Satan does in this text, because it has everything to do with sin. The first thing he does is call into question the Word of God. This is how sin begins. In a sense, he mocks it by asking, did God really say that? Do you really believe that? Satan is implying from the outset that God's word and thus God's authority can be questioned. This is a subtle yet dangerous attack as he is trying to make Adam and Eve think that the word of God, that even his most basic commands are up to our judgment, up to our analysis as to whether they are true and to be followed. We see this in our day as well, right? Practically speaking with the scriptures. Did God really say this about gender? Did God really say this about marriage? Did God really say this about sex? Now, in verse 2 and 3, Eve corrects the serpent, at least initially. She explains God has actually given us all of the trees to eat eat from, except for this one tree that is in the middle of the garden, because that tree, God has told them, will produce death. In fact, think about this. God's command is actually an act of God's protective love. We must see this ourselves here as well, in keeping with our First parents, Adam and Eve, we too are tempted in this way. We have so many good things the Lord has given to us, and yet so often we are drawn to move towards the very things that will harm us. I see this with my dog. I have a little golden doodle who has like way too many toys for a dog, and yet she always wants Ada's toys. She always gravitates to the very ones that are going to get her in trouble. But in verses 4 and 5, Satan, in response, openly contradicts God. He actually calls God a liar. He says, you will not surely die. In fact, you will be like him. Satan does this because we know from other parts of the Scripture, Satan does this because Satan is a liar. In fact, Jesus would say of him, when he lies, he is simply speaking out of his own character. Because he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, notice what Satan is doing. The first doctrine that Satan has questioned was the doctrine of the authority of God. But the second doctrine he's questioned is the doctrine of judgment. And this is consistent with Christian history as well. In every generation, both the doctrine of the Scriptures and the doctrine of judgment are questioned. In every generation, it's, would a loving God really do this? Would a loving God really send people to eternal judgment? Would a loving God really judge? It's, it's crafty on the part of Satan, but it's also downright wicked. What he's trying to do, his tactic, is try to get the one being deceived to not connect the consequences of actions with what's going to actually happen down the road, to not connect the consequences with the sin that you're about to commit. And ultimately, what will it will end up in, for all of us who are sinners, apart from the grace of God, it will end up in the worst of all consequences, that being, we see this here in the text, that being eternal judgment. As we fail to connect what we do in this life with how that will affect our eternity. Satan is now convinced, Adam and Eve, that they can evaluate God's word. He's convinced them that they can evaluate which one of God's commands they will actually follow. I mean, notice this. Notice what this does in their life, but also let's notice what it does uh, in, in sin in our own life. What this does is make Adam and Eve their own authority. In fact, it makes us in our own minds, even if we never say it, it makes us a higher authority than God because we get to determine what is right and wrong. 
we get to determine what is actually good. You know, said like in the past, some of the debates about abortion have, have said this. You know, most people are pro-choice except for three exceptions, and that would be you know rape, incest, and my situation. My brother was saying to me the other day because we have found out that there's all these Christian leaders who are now suing other Christians, which is an absolute violation of 1 Corinthians six. And what we're saying is, all of us are inerrantists who believe the Bible, except my situation. This is so deep within us, we see this as a challenge to our very first parents, as the very first temptation, and it is for us, the creature, to tell our own creator, I know better than you. There can hardly be a better understanding of sin, hardly a better description of outright rebellion. Satan's subtle attack includes questioning God's goodness and love and trustworthiness towards his own creatures. Satan is implying that God is selfish, and even more than that, that being created in his image is not enough. Like the tragic irony of Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve are already like God. They have already been created in his image. But Satan wants them to grasp for more by questioning that repeated refrain of Genesis 1 and 2, that God is good and that he is the supplier of good. Satan wants us to think that we have a wicked father who deprives us of good things. And notice this, practically for us, earthly fathers and mothers. He wants us to think that he is wicked and not good because he will not let us do whatever we want. Now, I see a lot of children in here. I see a lot of parents in here. I think It's important for us to think about this. God gives parents for the flourishing of children. And he, our perfect heavenly father, gives us his word, his commands, his guidelines for our flourishing and not for our ill. He gives us his word to lovingly protect us so that we would not, in this situation, eat from the poisonous tree. Indeed, he knows the fallout. He knows what comes from sin. We have a church near us in Raleigh that has as its main slogan, sin is not that big a deal. And, and I think I know what they're trying to say, but the problem is they, that sin is a big deal because sin wrecks families. Sin destroys relationships. Sin destroys people. Last year, my dad shared with me, he did this anonymously, but he was talking about a seminary student who he had had who, you know, 20 years before who had left his wife and family for another woman. And how that guy had come back into the picture and reached out to my dad two decades later. And dad shared this email with me. I think it illustrates what I'm trying to say. Here's what this man said to my dad. He said, I thought a lot about what you said all those years ago. That everyone you knew who did something like this ended up regretting it. He tries to explain that away. He says, I don't regret ending the marriage, but I do regret that I didn't get to raise my daughter. He said, there's no getting that back. There's no do-over. He said, we're not close today, and recent family drama has pretty much estranged us. I later would marry and divorce again. So I guess you could say that I made a train wreck of things. Brothers and sisters, I share that, but also teenagers and children in the room I want us to know that God is a perfect father who gives us his word and his commands because he loves us, because he wants to protect us, not because he's some kind of killjoy. Yet Adam and Eve will now abandon it. They will forfeit their dominion and rule over to Satan. And this is going to lead to a cataclysmic fall. It's going to lead to what we again call the curse. And this happens because they thought equality with God was a thing to be grasped. 
They wanted to substitute or put themselves in the place of God. And that's what sin is. And the question is, do we want to do that? After all, Adam and Eve's blood is running through our veins as well. Now look at the fallout, verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed, they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. One theologian commenting on this verse, these verses says this, this is flagrant rebellion against the divine word by the pinnacle of his creation. This is a heinous crime against both the cosmos and against its creator. And it's tragic in every way. Adam should have exercised dominion over the snake. He should have stepped over and crushed his head. Instead, we see what Romans 1 will talk about later on. In their attempt to put themselves in the place of God, they have listened to the voice of a creature rather than to the voice of the Creator. Instead of being reliant upon Him, upon His goodness, His word, His trustworthiness, they want self-liberation. They want to be their own authority. That is a perfect example, a perfect description of human sin. We want to be what we believe is liberated from His rules. We don't understand that being liberated from His rules is the very thing that leads to heartache. He gives us His word, again, not because He wants us to not have fun. He gives us His word because He wants to protect us and because He loves us. And look at the fallout. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me to be with me. She gave me the fruit to eat and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We see here from God a mixture of both judgment and grace. He doesn't smite them immediately, even though he could and even though consequences will come. No, instead he asks questions. And we know God knows all things. He's not asking questions for his own information. It's possible he's giving them a chance for confession and repentance. As we think about the concept of forgiveness of sins. This is both where we begin in the Christian life, but where we continue in the Christian life. When we sin, when we mess up, we confess it, we repent of it. But sadly, repentance could not be further from their minds. Instead, they try to play hide and seek with God, which we know is not a good, not a good game to play. God confronts Adam first, which is interesting because it pictures him as the greater rebel in the text. And that's because he's not leading his family. In the moments of first sin, Eve is leading and Adam is being passive, which is far too typical in men. It's even possible that Adam is letting Eve eat the fruit first to see if she will actually die. And then he's saying, well, if she's okay after she eats it, then I'll eat it. And this action also leads to something else that's far too common among sinners Instead of being repentant, we are experts at becoming blame shifters. We are experts at becoming self-justifiers. I mean, notice in the text, Adam blames his sin on the best gift that God has given to him. He blames Eve, the woman you gave me. But he not only blames Eve, he blames God. Again, the woman you gave me made me do this. Eve blames the serpent. Satan made me do this. 
I mean, the blame shifting and the excusing of our sin, this is certainly deep within us. We are experts at self-justification. I used to teach high school, and I remember I would always give the obligatory, okay, as we start the test, there's no talking. And then eventually, initially, almost every time, somebody would talk. And I would confront them, and it would always be some just crazy excuse. Well, she's having a really bad day, so I had to talk to her. Or I'm just asking to borrow a pen. As though those were exceptions to the clear directive I had just given them. But we do that in silly ways, but we do this in even more far greater ways. I, mean, I remember years ago, a Christianity Today article where a prominent pastor who had fallen in sin, who had, had an affair, he basically, like he, you could have quoted Genesis 3, he literally said, my wife's own sin made me do this. I mean, there's so much we could unpack there for time's sake, but uh, for time's sake, let's suffice it to say, let's be on alert in our own lives to how often we like to shift any blame or justify any sin that we have been confronted with. Now watch the tragic result. We see some things broken because of their sin. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And, Adam, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face shall you eat bread, till you return to the ground. For listen to this, for you were taken from, for out of it you were taken, and you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Three relationships are broken here as a result of their sin. The first is our relationship to God is broken. The text seems to indicate that Adam and Eve used to commune with God, and now it says in the cool of the day they hide themselves from him because they cannot be in the presence as sinners in the presence of a holy God. Second, the relationship among humanity or with each other is now broken. As now the most intimate and profound relationships like marriage and like family will be broken to the point that just one chapter later, a brother will strike down his own brother. And we see the curse for the woman, right? What is vital about who she is to be will now be a curse for her. Her companionship to her husband will be adversely affected, as will her pain in childbearing. And the exact same thing for the man. What he is supposed to be and do is now cursed as well, as he will get a taste of his own medicine, as now the very ground that he is supposed to work will rebel against him. Finally, the creation itself is broken. Thorns and thistles will come out of the ground as a sign that all of creation is broken and under a cataclysmic curse brought on by the sin of our parents. And then verse 19, the most drastic of all the consequences of sin is death itself. And it's pictured here immediately, Adam and Eve, a spiritual death. They are removed from Eden. They are removed from the presence of God. Ultimate death is being removed from the presence of God. Their physical death would wait years later, but they would suffer the great consequence of sin. Yet, brothers and sisters, this is not the end of the story. God will take us to a second tree. God will take us to a second garden. 
This time it will be a garden and tree of death that will lead to life. Genesis 3.15 is telling us that God in his grace will not leave us in this situation. He will not leave us in our sin. He will not leave us in our rebellion. No, he is going to send someone to deliver a fatal blow to the serpent who will reverse the curse and regain dominion and bring his people back into the presence of God. We see this often. God is in the reversal business. He is saying from the outset to Satan, you want to use the woman and turn her against me? Fine, I will use the woman to crush your head. And there's an allusion to Genesis 3.15, just one chapter over in Genesis 4, as Abel is killed, then Eve conceives of another son, a son named Seth, and she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. And yet, if you know the Old Testament, Seth will also grow up and he will live, but he will die. And the rest of the Old Testament is asking, who is this offspring? Who will fix what has gone wrong? Who will deal with the serpent? Is it Moses? No, he is a sinner. He sins and he fails and he dies. Is it David? No, he sins and he fails and he dies. Is it Solomon or any of David's sons? No, they sin, they fail, and they die. And the reign of sin and the the reign of the curse and the reign of death from Eden on is unstoppable. And it seems as though nobody can turn it back. That is until we get to Bethlehem. Until we come to a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And as he comes on the scene, his miracles demonstrate who he is. In fact, they demonstrate his power over the curse. As he, he will heal the sick, he will raise the dead. And even the creation itself will listen to him as he will be on a boat. And the winds and waves will pick up against it. And he will be able to speak to creation and say, be still. And they listen to him. Who is this man, they ask? That even the winds and waves would obey him. In John's gospel that we've read earlier, is it, is it very interesting in particular as it regards to Genesis. Because John begins his gospel with the Greek word inarche. He begins it in the beginning, meaning he is saying, what I'm about to write to you is a Genesis type of thing. And then in John 19 and 20, what we just read at the beginning, we come to the second tree. We come to the cross and the second garden, a garden tomb. John has written that in verse 41. In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb. And it's especially interesting how John's account of the sixth and seventh day of the Passion Week parallels day six and seven of creation. Just think about this. On the sixth day in creation, God finished his work. And on the sixth day in John's gospel, the last thing Jesus says on the cross is it is finished. Jesus has completed his work. And then on the seventh day in creation, God rested from what he had done. And on the seventh day of the passion week, Jesus, the God man rests in a garden tomb. And then what happens on the eighth day? John calls it very clearly in John 20, he says, on the first day of the new week. And on the first day of the new week, we experience new creation. 
we see resurrection. In the cross and in the resurrection, in the second tree and garden, a new day has dawned. A new world has commenced. A new Genesis has come as Jesus has overcome the curse and reversed the course of death and reversed the course of exile. And how did he do this? How did he restore our relationship to God so that he would say to Mary in the garden, I will soon be ascending not just to my God, but to your God? How did he restore the relationship of humanity to one another, shown in that he tells Mary in that garden of the very brothers who had just abandoned him he says go get my brothers and how did he fix the curse on the creation itself it is very clear Paul will talk about this later Jesus fixed the curse by those thorns and thistles that came out of the ground as a sign of the curse Jesus took them on his head at the second tree he overcame the curse Paul tells the churches of Galatia by becoming a curse for us because cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree at the tree at the cross he has become our sin bearer he has become our curse owner the judgment of God do our sins and our rebellion and our wickedness touches down upon him at Golgotha as Jesus the only sinless one takes the place of sinners and takes the final penalty of sin death itself and then Jesus walks out on the other side restoring all that was broken in Eden reversing the curse and the future of humanity the biggest question of history, the biggest question, question humanity should have is one they don't often know how to ask, and it is how can sinful rebels be brought back into the presence of a holy God? And we know this if we are Christians very simply because the answer is Jesus of Nazareth. The God-man who at the cross makes it possible for God to be both just in dealing with sin, but also gracious as the one who is justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Indeed, as we think about the concept of the forgiveness of sins, it is very clear the whole world is a story about substitution. In our sin, in our rebellion, and in our wickedness, we have tried to substitute ourselves and put ourselves in the place of God, as though equality with God was a thing to be grasped. And yet God in His grace, God in the gospel, substitutes and puts Himself in the place of humanity. If you really think about it, Jesus is amazing in the sense that he was the very one who was God himself, and yet he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order to make things right. Brothers and sisters, it is so important for us to realize we do not have a pull-yourself-up religion. That is not how we deal with our sin. No, we have someone made us alive when we were dead and someone made us righteous when we were unrighteous religion. And the way you take hold of that, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to hear me clearly. The way you take hold of that is not by trying harder, doing more, trying to clean yourself up. The way you take hold of what Christ has done to provide for your forgiveness, the way you take hold of what Christ has done for you on the cross and in the resurrection is by repentance and faith and faith alone. That's you. You're here and you're not a Christian. Like We want to talk to you about what is true forgiveness, what is true repentance, and what is true faith and trust in the very one who can provide for you a righteousness that is not your own. I think this is wonderful news. It's why we celebrate this coming of the Lord Jesus at the Christmas season. Our forgiveness and thus our rightness or our righteousness with God, the provision made on our behalf is only possible because of the incarnation. 
This is how he dealt with sin, by this miraculous and mysterious union of God and man, two natures and the one person, Jesus Christ, who can by his sinless, perfect substitutionary sacrifice bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful man, making it possible for God to judge sin as holy, but also be gracious in his extension of the gospel to the one who would have faith in Jesus. That's why I love this quote from the great Baptist preacher R.G. Lee. He speaks of the wonder of the incarnation, of this mysterious union of the the two natures in the man Jesus, and he says this, Christ who in eternity rested motherless upon the Father's bosom and in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom, clasping the ancient of days who had now become the infant of days. What deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. Listen to this. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who made and knows all places. The deep humiliation of the creator, born of the creature woman, but in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. No wonder Queen Lucy would say in the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, yes, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was larger than our entire world. May we this morning praise him for so great a salvation, for so kind a forgiveness, and then let us, understanding the love of God in Christ Jesus and the forgiveness we find there, drive us to greater affection. And may that greater affection lead us to make war on the very sin that has separated us from God in the first place. And then, by understanding this great forgiveness given to us in the gospel, may we then be those who can turn around and extend forgiveness to others. And then let's remember where he's taking us. For those of us that are in Christ Jesus, he is taking us to a final tree and to a final garden, a garden city. We're here, this believers, where we will once again dwell in a place of peace and shalom and wholeness, a place where there will be no more sin, no more strife, no more pain. Think about this, a place where we won't even have to lock our doors. There will be nothing for us to worry about on that day. Here's how our brother John records it in the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, he says this, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, heads, and night will be no more. They will have no need of light, lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they, listen to this, we will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, where is he taking us? He is taking us to a place better than Eden. Because it's a place where we will actually know real love. It's a place where we'll know true forgiveness. It's a place where we'll know true redemption. 
place where everything will be restored. Our relationship to God will be restored. He will be there as our Emmanuel. The Lamb will be with us. Our relationship to one another will be restored forever. We will be brothers and sisters in a family. There will be no more Cains, and the creation itself will be restored. No longer is anything accursed. The greatest story ever told because it is a story that is true. It makes sense of the world. It makes sense of our longings. That's why Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings, would say it is the true myth because it tells us who we are, human beings created in the image of God. It tells us what went wrong. Sin is what went wrong, but it tells us the best news ever of who can fix it. Jesus of Nazareth, the great deliverer who laid down his life for his bride, for his princess, and it tells us where we are going. We are going to paradise. So then, brothers and sisters, as we close, we have thought a lot about forgiveness for us. What about forgiveness from us? You know, in that moment when I was 13 years old, I had the chance to understand true forgiveness, to understand the gospel and what I had received, particularly in the areas of anger and forgiveness and vengeance. And sadly, in that moment, when when Robbie spit on me, I, I just turned around and began to punch him in the face. And what I was showing in that moment, if Robbie was a believer, what I was saying in that moment is that I believe the cross of Christ is enough to forgive my infinite sins against God, but the cross of Christ is not enough to forgive Robbie's sins done against me. Let's say Robbie wasn't a Christian. I was saying I don't believe God's really going to hold this sin to account. I'm the one who has to hold it to account right here and right now. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded in the gospel that judgment is God's and God's alone. And for that, we should be so grateful. But that means if judgment is God's, so is vengeance. It is not ours. We can and we must be those who forgive because of the great forgiveness we have been shown. As I think about that scene in my life, I can't help but think of Peter in his epistles when he says we follow in the footsteps of the one who when he was reviled he did not revile in return when Jesus was spit upon he did not punch back in return it is very clear that we live in a broken world where we will be wronged we might be mocked for what we believed we might be at some point persecuted for what we believed And in a world like that, we're going to be tempted to use our words, and we're going to be tempted to use our fists. Like Peter, we're going to be tempted to use our swords. May we remember that we are gospel men and women, and because we have been forgiven, because we are forgiven men and women, we can be forgiving men and women, because we can entrust the wrongs done against us to somebody else. As one pastor reminded me years ago, one day there's going to be this great explosion in the eastern sky, and everybody's going to be hooked. This glorious, gracious, merciful, and just, formerly crucified man. And essentially what he might say to us on, on that day, in essence, what he might say to vengeful men like, like Peter and me, who are tempted to use our words, or tempted to use our swords, or tempted to use our fists to lash out when we've been wrong. He's simply going to say on that day, no need for swords, boys. I'm going to take care of everything from here. Father, we're thankful for your word, which tells us how you have dealt with sin. 
Oh, Father, what a great forgiveness we have been given. Father, may we know how heinous our sin is, but may we know how sweet your mercy is. Oh, Father, I'm reminded of the Beatitudes. Father, blessed are the merciful, for they are the very ones who will receive mercy. So, Father, may we understand the forgiveness we have been shown, and then may that change everything about who we are. Father, I pray for some in this room that may not know Christ. Father, I pray that they would see this amazing union between God and man and how Jesus and his work on the cross has made a way for them to be right with God. Father, I pray for them, even if they don't think or don't see or don't understand that they are not right with God. Father, I pray you'd bring conviction, and then, Father, I pray you'd bring the medicine and the healing that they need only found in the gospel. Father, for those of us that do know Jesus and who are in right relationship with him and who have been restored and are at peace with you, Father, may our affections and our desire to be as you are help us to fight and kill sin. And certainly, Father, help, it, help us to be forgiving people. So, Father, now by the fellowship of the saints, by the singing, by the preaching of your word, uh, Father, would you please transform us from one degree of glory to another until we finally get to see you face to face in a place where there will be no more curse. Hasten the day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.